well, let's turn our attention to the Word of God. Um, Two weeks ago, we looked at God's patience with Israel. There was this, if you were here two weeks ago, uh, I, I had six stages on the screen that I put up of this cycle of rebellion and mercy that we found in Ezekiel chapter 20. Now, and, and during, like I said, during that message, I provided the six-step six cycle. Basically what it was, God showed himself, revealed himself to the people, was first. Second, he called them to something. Right? Put away your idols, turn to him, walk in his law. Third was that they rebelled against him. Fourth was that he threatened punishment upon them. The fifth was, and this is the one that I, we drew our attention to last week, was that it was a delay or a restraint in that wrath. And then six, there was an act of limited judgment. And so this week, we're going to look at Ezekiel 36. You can start pulling that out if you want to in the Bible. And it, it's almost like drilling down a little bit into that fifth step. Right? God acknowledging that judgment is coming, that there is some, some punishment, consequences of their actions, but why there is restraint for the sake of his holy name. And so we're going to see some of these same themes that we saw two weeks ago, that God is patient with Israel. He's not giving them what they deserve, restraining his punishment. And the theme that we saw in both chapters is that he's doing this because of concern for his holy name. And at the end of our passage this morning, we'll see this further promised restoration of the nations, which is essential for their continued obedience to Yahweh. You know, to summarize it, uh, I like the way the words of one commentator who wrote about it. He said, quote, it's not enough for God to give Israel a new shepherd leader, which is what we saw last week, a good shepherd, and a renewed land. He said the nation had had good kings in the past. And what he's saying is that a virtuous leader, right, peace in the land, is not enough for Israel to maintain faithfulness. They had that under King David. They had that under some of the other kings of Judah. But th- throughout their history, they had good kings, but they continued to rebel against God. So what, what the commentators pointing to in our passage describes is that if you want to have true obedience to the things of God, is going to require a total transformation of the people. So those are the themes we'll be focusing on this morning. So let me start. We're going to read, follow along, uh, begin with Ezekiel 36, verses 16 to 21. This section describes why judgment was necessary and why mercy will follow. So it begins this way. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, when the house of Israel lived in their own land, they defiled it by their ways and their deeds. Their ways before me were like the uncleanness of a woman in her menstrual impurity. So I poured out my wrath upon them for the blood that they had shed in the land, for the idols with which they had defiled it. I scattered them among the nations, and they were dispersed through the countries. In accordance with their ways and their deeds, I judged them. But when they came to the nations, wherever they came, they profaned my holy name. And that people said of them, these are the people of the Lord, and yet they had to go out of his land. But I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations to which they came. So verse 17 tells us that because of Israel's actions, the land was defiled. 
or it was polluted before then. And this fits with our understanding of the ramifications of sin, right? Scholars believe that that original sin, Adam and Eve, Genesis chapter 3, in the garden messed up four particular relationships between humanity and God, between human and human, between human and him or herself, and then between humanity and creation. Sometimes we only focus on one or two of those, but most scholars believe that there's evidence in Scripture that all four of those relationships got marred. So Israel's unfaithfulness is not just ethereal or a mystical issue, you know. Put another way, sin does not just affect the spiritual plane, but it affects our physical, tangible experiences as well. Now, the comparison that God makes for those of us reading in the 21st century, it might feel a little backwards. He compares this defilement or pollution to the ceremonial uncleanness of menstruation. What does a woman's period have to do with the idolatry that's being described in the prophet? Well, what Ezekiel, what God's borrowing from in this, is this link of uncleanness and menstruation that was tied to a portion of law that's found in Leviticus 15. Right, the chapter heading for this section, if you, if you had, I don't know what the other translations, but if you're reading the ESV, the chapter heading for Leviticus 15 is laws about bodily discharges. Sounds like some real pleasant reading there. Now, just because the law states that something is unclean, and you can read that on your own, it's not just menstruation that's talked about, there are a few others as well. But just because something's described as un- unclean doesn't necessarily mean that it's wicked or evil. I think that's an important element for us to understand. The the great Jewish scholar Jacob Milgram, he has written extensively on the book of Leviticus, and, and this is how he frames it. He would say that when there was a loss of blood or other essential bodily fluid, it was considered part of the realm of death. And so the repercussions that follow are similar to what you would experience like if you had been in contact with a corpse. If you touched a dead body, there's nothing evil about doing so, but you were considered unclean because you had been involved in the realm of death, and so there was a period of of waiting, of ritual washing, so that you could reestablish that cleanness. Being in contact, this is what Jacob Milgram says, being in contact with the realm of death made you unfit to be in contact with the realm of life, i.e. God. And so the, the result of this uncleanness was that people were not able to participate in the worship of the temple for a period of time. As I said, there was some, you know, washing and, and other things that would restore that cleanness. Now this is the context that Ezekiel's culture is operating within. You know, speaking out of this, God is making a comparison. He's saying that Israel, in essence, has turned the land into a place of death through their bloodshed and idolatry. As a result of this, they are unclean. They're unfit to be in contact with God. And so as a result, and again, this is a little bit different, but as a result, he is pouring his wrath on them and kicks them out of the land. And just for the record, that stuff in Leviticus 15, uh, it's part of the ceremonial law fulfilled in Jesus. We don't have to obey it anymore, just to keep, make sure I mention that. All right, let me take a quick step back. I, I'm going to try to 
because I know this might be a little bit difficult for us to, to, to grasp. I want to help us understand this through another framework, through another portion of the law. So another element of the ceremonial law, again, this isn't the moral law. The moral law is stuff like the Ten Commandments. Don't kill people, don't, don't steal, right? don't covet, be jealous. This is more closer to things like don't eat bacon or shrimp because the Jewish people weren't allowed to. They still aren't allowed to in their minds. Let's look at this relationship that Israel had with food. All right, so sorry for my poor graphic skills. Not very, not very artistic. You got three concentric circles here, all right? All of them fall under the category, the broad category of animals that can be eaten, that are able to be eaten, not whether you should or shouldn't. I don't really want to eat scorpions. Um, but you've got these three concentric circles. That outer ring are the examples that I provide are animals that would have been considered unclean. Things like pigs, shellfish, camels, scorpions, things that crawl along the ground. I don't think they could eat snakes either. Right? The Israelites were forbidden to eat these animals. Now that next ring in, think things like sheep, pigeons, oxen. These were animals that were considered clean, that could be eaten. But then at the center of that circle, you had even more tighter restriction, higher tier of animals. These were animals that could be used for sacred purposes. They had to be free from blemish. You were to take the best of your flock as an offering to God, to give back to God. Right? You wouldn't use the blind lamb or the lamb that had a limp. Those things were not considered worthy as an offering to God. It might be a clean animal, but it was not flawless enough to offer to God. I, I don't know if that makes sense, kind of these concentric circles that, that all animals, but then there was these tiers where you could get closer, if you will, to the presence or purposes of God. Now let's take that framework and reuse it in terms of like geographic slash people. In the old, this is the Old Testament, right? People, the world. That outer ring is going to be the Gentiles, what the Bible calls the nations, right? They're human beings, but they are lacking that special relationship with God as being his people. Now, that next ring in would be the Hebrew people, the nation of Israel. But even out of the nation of Israel, there was an, a higher tier in terms of proximity to God. They were the priests, or it would, you could say Jerusalem is kind of the pinnacle of the, the nation of Israel, or, and more specifically because the temple was there where God's presence physically dwelt. And so the closer to the center, the more connected to God, right? that divine presence of life. And so what God is saying here in the passage in Ezekiel that was read is that the Hebrew people have been acting like Gentiles, they have made themselves unclean through their actions. They have behaved in a way that has compromised their ability to inhabit those inner circles. And so as a result, God is scattering them. He is taking them from that center and driving them out to the nations. God's scattering them out of the promised land. All right, so that, that's kind of the, the, the why judgment. And I, I know it's... I could feel that this, a lot of what I feel like I've been saying over the last few weeks 
I think this is week six, it just feels bleak because it's just a lot of like, you guys stink. You're not doing what you're supposed to be doing. But while this passage describes judgment and many of the others, we've seen these kind of silver linings, these, these hidden threads that God promises why mercy will follow. That judgment, even if it's an act of limited judgment, is never the end of the story. And verse 21 teases this when God says that he has concern for his holy name. So let's, let's jump back to the text. I'm going to read the next two verses, which I think expound this a little bit more. This is Ezekiel 36, 22 to 23. He says, Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. So God is saying, mercy is coming, but it's not because of any merit on the part of Israel, because God is concerned, dare I say, passionate about his holy name. So what does that mean? Now, there, there's a number of things in the scriptures when God talks about, uh, you know, his name being profaned. You know, we, we talk about not taking the Lord's name in vain as the third commandment. I'm not going to unpack that. I think has a little bit of a different meaning. But the primary one at play in this text that we're looking at right now is that God had promised the Hebrew people to bring them to the promised land, to preserve them there, to provide for them there. And so if Israel had been utterly wiped out, the nations around, it's kind of like God's reputation. The nations around would think, oh man, their God's not capable of fulfilling his promises. This is precisely what Moses does when he appeals to God. This is back in Exodus 32. Uh, you know, Moses is off getting the, the Ten Commandments, the law, and he comes down and, you know, they're throwing a, a, a party, a real rager with a golden calf, and God's like, I'm gonna wipe them out. They're, they're testing my patience. Moses is basically like, what, what are these nations around going to think if you, you know, rescued them from Egypt only to kill them in the wilderness? And he, he's appealing to God's reputation as it relates to the nations around them. And so as we've seen, the Israelites are not shown mercy because they were owed it. Ezekiel goes out of his way to demonstrate that they were deserving of the punishment that they'd been receiving. But when God entered into a covenant with Israel, he locked himself in to mercy towards them. When God entered into that covenant relationship, and I think there is some, some take-home for us as well, being a part of the new covenant with God, he locks himself in to mercy towards them. God will keep his promises, and that means not giving Israel what they deserve. And, you know, frankly, through the, the new covenant, through the cross of Jesus, this is precisely under the umbrella that we now fall as well. We've all received grace, which is God's unmerited favor, right? He gives us something we don't deserve. All, we have also been shown mercy, where we have not received what we do actually deserve. So how is it that God is going to, we, we just saw why he's going to vindicate them but how does he vindicate them after their punishment? 
And this was the quote that I provided at the start of the message. Just having that shepherd leader, just being brought back into the land wasn't enough. Beyond the externals, there needed to be a change in that interior life. God was going to change their nature and by our future inclusion, ours too, so that we can carry his name well to those around us. And so this, this outside reality of restoring them to their land post-exile was mo- meant to point to the inward reality of transformation. So let's try, let's finish the text. I'm going to try to go through the rest of this passage relatively quickly so we can have some take-homes. So this is follow along as I read. Exodus, or not Exodus, wrong e-book. Ezekiel 36, 24 to 38. This is God's promise. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols. I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart, the new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God. I'll deliver you from your uncleanness, and I will summon the grain and make it abundant and lay no famine upon you. I will make the fruit of the tree and the increase of the field abundant, that you may never again suffer the disgrace of famine among the nations." Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good, and you will loathe yourselves for your iniquities and your abominations. It's not for your sake that I will act, declares the Lord God. Let it be known to you. Let that be known to you. Be ashamed and confounded for your ways, O house of Israel. Thus says the Lord God on that day that I cleanse you from all your iniquities, I will cause the cities to be inhabited and the waste places will be rebuilt. And the land that was desolate shall be tilled, instead of being the desolation that it was in the sight of all who passed by. And they will say, this land that was desolate has become like the Garden of Eden. And the waste and desolate and ruined cities are now fortified and inhabited. Then the nations that are left all around you shall know that I am the Lord. I have rebuilt the ruined places and replanted that which was desolate. I am the Lord. I have spoken and I will do it. Thus says the Lord God, this also I will let the house of Israel ask me to do for them, to increase their people like a flock, like the flock for sacrifices, like the flock at Jerusalem during her appointed feast, so shall the waste cities be filled with flocks of people. Then they will know that I am the Lord. So what we see in this passage is God bringing them back to the land and then some. They will be redeemed both outwardly as well as inwardly. Let's go rapid fire through some of these. Verse 24, they'd be gathered back into their own land. Verse 25, they would be sprinkled with water, being cleansed from all their past impurities. I reference that Leviticus 15, you know, laws about bodily discharges. And this is the language that's in there, this ritual washing for ceremonial uncleanness. Verse 26, God would change their heart, right? Those cold, unyielding hearts of stone would be replaced with warm, responsive flesh. 
Verse 27, God's spirit would dwell with them and lead them down the path of obedience. Verse 8, they will be God's people, i.e., he will not be ashamed of them. Verse 30, the land will be marked with fruitfulness and flourishing. I mean, these are some great promises. Now you come to the next verse, verse 31, and I'll put a little pin in that one, because it seems out of place with all the feel-good promises around it, that they will loathe themselves for their past behavior. So when we get to the take-ups, I'm going to circle back on that one, so keep it in mind. Keep going, though. Verse 35, right? There's this throwback to the Garden of Eden. The land will again be like paradise, that ultimate symbol of fruitfulness, of provision. But it's actually going to be better than the original garden. This is not just a garden, but it's been filled with restored cities. There will be an abundance of people. Notice this language in verse 38. It says, flocks of people. That word people that is used is the Hebrew word Adam, where we get the, you know, the name Adam from. Whereas the Garden of Eden had one Adam, this restored land will be filled with, to the brim with other Adams, other image bearers. Finally, in verse 37, we see that God will again be responsive to the people's petitions and seeking. And this is healing in the relationship that was, we saw broken two weeks ago in Ezekiel chapter 20. Once again in Ezekiel, we see this future reality that we long for. It is not the present reality we live in, but we lay hold, hope that it's coming, that God is faithful. So I want to kind of take, what does this mean for us? How do we understand this? What's the take home for us? And I have two things, I think they're related, that I want to touch on briefly. How are we changed? What does that transformation look like? And then I want to double back on this guilt-shame paradigm that I mentioned a moment ago. So as we saw this morning, right, that, that just changing the location of Israel was not enough to bring effectual change. Heart surgery was required. Through the Holy Spirit, God would take those hearts of stone and replace them with hearts of flesh that would obey Him. I think change, the desire for change, speaks loudly to many of us. We desperately want to see change in our lives. Whether it's you want to lose a few pounds, you want to be more present with your kids, you want to stop those areas of compulsion, whether that be substance abuse or just our addiction to our screens. And, and it's common to try to make these changes by brute force, to follow a self-help program, you know, that whole like pull yourselves up by your bootstraps mentality. I think I mentioned this book a few weeks ago, but I, I recently read the book Atomic Habits by James Clear. And the book the whole thesis of the book is, right, atomic, small habits that can lead to big changes. If you can just change yourself 1% for the better for the day, I don't really know how you quantify that, but if it's just, you know, this small incremental growth over the long haul through compound interest yields big change. And, And there's good wisdom in that book, but invariably, I'm convinced that we will return back to those neural pathways that have been carved out in our brain over years. We eventually are going to default, if we're on our own, back to the path of least resistance. Back to those. It's so easy to fall back into those old habits. What this passage shows us is that if we want to change our lives, whether it be in the arenas of what we typically call, you know, spiritual, like prayer and holiness, 
or things like that are secular, like dropping some weight or controlling our spending habits. Now notice I put them in air quotes, right, because I believe that all of life is sacred. But what's needed is a transform, what the Bible says is a transformation of our heart. You know, maybe if we're thinking a little bit biologically, is we need God to carve some new neural pathways in our brains, to bring some healing to that brain. You know, if you have an infected wound on your arm, got this cut, gets infected, if I just keep putting Band-Aids on it, keep taking Advil for the pain, I'm treating the surface symptoms. I'm not going to get anywhere with it. You've got to flush out the bacteria. You've got to remove that infection for true healing to occur. And this is what fits with this message from our passage this morning. We saw the language of cleansing and organ transplantation. You know, as I was preparing this, I was reminded of the first two steps of AA, that we admit that we are powerless over fill-in-the-blank, whatever that vice is. It's the first step. And the second is that we need a power greater than ourselves to restore our sanity. We desperately need the Holy Spirit of God to bring these changes to us. As we examine this identity, as we understand these places of brokenness in our lives that we want to see change, I think we often struggle, I know I often struggle, with negative feelings against ourselves. We might see the destruction that a poor decision has caused. And this is where I want to loop back to verse 31. Because it's interesting that in the midst of these, like, really great, feel-good messages of hope that God says, like, you're going to be really sorry for your sins. I mean, he uses words like you're going to loathe yourself. Because a part of our healing process is ownership of our sin. Look back at the places where we have rebelled against God, where we've harmed our neighbors or ourselves. You know, when when I was reading a commentary in preparation for this morning, he put this under the umbrella of shame, having shame for us. And I don't personally, again, this is semantics, but I I don't like that label. I prefer to categorize shame and guilt differently. I believe that guilt, so guilt is a negative emotion. It does not feel good to feel guilty. But I think it can be a very powerful and positive tool for our spiritual development. I would describe guilt as, to use some kind of Bible language, to be as synonymous with conviction of sin, what the Holy Spirit brings us. We should feel bad when we do something, you know, having a conscience, if you will. We should feel bad when we do something wrong. By acknowledging our mistakes or sin, we're able to turn to God for that healing, for that cleansing. If we just ignore those feelings, or if we just, you know, try to mask them with food or entertainment, you know, Netflix binge, then we're not being honest with ourselves. And we're actually ignoring our need from healing and are not going to seek out that healing. Now, I will find any opportunity I can to use this image. I haven't used it in a while. This is the cross chart. comes from the Gospel-Centered Life. I love it. Uh, By Serge. used to be World Harvest Mission. And basically, this illustr- I think this illustrates this principle for us. So you have, you know, you have time. If you can't read it, it's a little pixelated, I know. Uh, you have that moment of conversion, and then the path splits in two. 
and the top says growing awareness of God's holiness, right? Because the longer that we are a Christian, the bigger and more majestic we ought to realize that God is. Conversely, on that bottom line, it says growing awareness of my sin. Not that we're becoming more sinful, but that we are becoming more aware of it. We see just how deep the rabbit hole goes in our lives. The only thing that can cross this chasm, regardless of where you're on that x-axis you find ourselves, whether it's the moment right after conversion or after a decade long, but the only thing that can bridge that gap is the cross. And the more there's a separation, the more we acknowledge God's holiness and the more I acknowledge my sinfulness, man, that cross gets bigger and bigger in my life. And what that means, the result of that in our lives, is that we become more, we come to terms more and more with the wonder and grace of God. Tim Keller used to say that the gospel is that we are far more broken, far more sinful than we would ever care to admit and at the same time more deeply loved than we could ever imagine. And that gospel, when we have that big cross in our lives, it gives us the security to be honest about our sin in a way that we know that we're not going to be rejected by God. I think guilt allows us, in a positive way, to go down that rabbit hill and come up through the cross. Shame, on the other hand, I would say, is the language of the enemy. Shame is those whispers you hear that tell you that you are not enough, that you are not worthy of God's love and forgiveness. Guilt would say, I made a mistake. Shame would say, I am a mistake. And I think this gets back to what what, what, what we sang about, that importance for us to remember who we are, now, you, all, you all know my kids. My daughter's sitting over there. She, <laughs> she's like, what's he going to say? She might make a mistake, and I might get upset. Unfortunately, I get upset disproportionately to what I should sometimes. I've talked about that openly. Right? But nowhere does she make a mistake that I say, you're not my child anymore. She's always my child, regardless of what she does. And I think that is the important thing for us to remember, that we are a child of God, and that we're going to make mistakes. We're going to go off the beaten path where we shouldn't. God's going to call us home. There's nothing we can do that he forsakes us. His word promises that. Not all negative feelings are to be avoided. As I said a moment ago, guilt can be a pot as if I don't know what you, I can't read that from here. She's drawing some picture of me. Guilt can be a powerful motivator to seek the mercy, seek the healing of God, which can yield that heart transformation that we've been examining. But those negative feelings or messages that beat you up tell you that you are less than. Those need to be rejected. They are not from God. Now, this verse 31 reminds us that, or tells us that in some manner, our deeds are going to be paraded before our eyes on the other side of paradise. You know, passages like this show us that there may be guilt, at least initially, in that future kingdom of God, but never is the goal that it's debilitating to the point that we feel so unworthy of God's love. 
We've been purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ. And in love, God has brought redemption to us. If God has showcased his love so powerfully to us, far be it from us to disagree with him. God loves you deeply, and don't let anyone or anything else tell you anything otherwise. And I want to give you some, tra- some questions to think about this week in line with this. Put them on Facebook and the web like usual. So let's talk about transformation, change. Think of a habit that you've tried to start or you've tried to stop. What might it look like for you to invite God to the process? Invite him to transform you instead of just trying to do it by brute force. Again, it's not to say that you don't do anything. Be like, Jesus, take the wheel. That's not what I'm suggesting. Go through the behaviors, but don't go through the behaviors alone. Second is this. Sweet, so pay attention to those negative emotions that you feel. Okay, don't, just, don't just placate them with eating a whole cleave of Oreos. Not that I've ever done that. As you think of those negative emotions, are you able to classify, and again, this doesn't fit all negative emotions, but are you able to classify those things as guilt, which again, I'm saying is good, can be of God, and shame? Because if you can classify them, that can help you understand which voices. A lot of people want to know discernment. What is God telling me? These are some of those rubrics, those metrics, not metrics, but tools that can help us understand whether something is from God or not, guilt and shame. And lastly is this, you know, that passage that we, we closed with, meditate on Ezekiel 36, 24 to 38. You know, there's a lot of promises in there. Which of those do you find most compelling and why? Let's... Uh, close in prayer, and then we've got a closing song to sing. Lord, I I thank you for your word that we see once again in Israel's story, our story, that we continue to be far from perfect and we continue to go through these cycles of disobedience, but you have redeemed us, and you are in that process of healing us, that as your word says in Philippians, that the work that you began, you're going to finish on the day of Christ. And so, Lord, we anxiously await, we look forward to that time when there is healing, when there's restoration, when that, those cold, dead hearts that are still somewhat present in our lives would be totally and finally chipped away and replaced with your hearts of flesh that obey you. Give us eyes to see the ways that you are working, both in the positive and the negative emotions in our lives. In Christ's name, amen.